Good morning, everybody. Good to good to be back. Is this too loud? We're good. Okay. All right. So uh, last week, uh, Daddy went down through um, uh, verse eight of Jeremiah chapter twenty-three. We'll start um, back up a little bit. We'll we'll just touch on a few things uh, in the first few verses uh, by way of review and to get a running start into the rest of the chapter. Uh, so I'll just jump on in and highlight just a few things. Uh, first one of chapter 23 of Jeremiah. It says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Uh, any doubt as to who he's talking about here? I think he's very clear. Uh, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Um, those of you, uh, priests, leaders, and so forth, who have been in charge of my people, you have not done well. Uh, you have scattered the sheep. Uh, whereas, think about it, a typical shepherd, he wants to keep the sheep together, right? Uh, keep them all together so they can be protected, so that they can be led to uh, good grazing and good water and all those things. Um, this is the opposite of what you would want to do with your flock. It says, you've not done well. You've scattered my flock. You've driven them away. You have not been a good steward to them. And therefore, uh, since you didn't attend to them, I'm going to attend to you. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with you. But we have the other part of that where he says in verse 3, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold. They shall be fruitful and multiply. So we've talked several times throughout, really throughout, you know, all the teaching that we have done in this class, but especially since we've been in Jeremiah, we also talked about Isaiah. Uh, all the prophets refer to this concept of a remnant. I know Dad talked about it last week. Uh, this this um, select few uh, of all the people that we would broadly classify as, you know, God's people, the, those of... Um, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, uh, but we know that not all of that group um, were really of God, so to speak, especially as they became more and more corrupt uh, in this time of the kings. And, but he always says, you know, there's going to be a few. There's going to be a remnant there. And we're going to hit this uh, if we get to chapter 24, which I think we will, um, which kind of bookends this, this thought, this concept of uh, the remnant. Uh, to tie it in, if you'll flip over to the book of Romans, of course, uh, we've been in Romans uh, with Pastor Bobby, and uh, you've probably, if you've been paying attention, how many times are Dad and I quoting Romans? It just kind of... Uh, Romans often ties together things, um, but if you turn to Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul picks up this concept. Uh, you know, the themes, the Bible is very cohesive. So in Romans 11, we're going to hear Paul talk about prophets. We're going to hear him talk about uh, the remnant and so forth. Uh, so uh, he's making this argument about uh, who really is a believer, who really is in Christ, and who isn't. And of course, we've been following 
Pastor Bobby's take on all of this. Um, but if you go, look down to um, uh, verse 4, um, uh, where Paul re- replies uh, to Elijah and so forth about, you know, who is left? Uh, in other words, who is this remnant? And it says, but what is God's reply to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, this is Paul speaking now, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Um, and he goes through and he, he talks about this remnant. And then um, in verse 11, he talks about this root that we as a wild olive shoot are grafted into uh, this root. So if you could picture, there is a root of true Israel. Picture that as a tree with a root. Um, this isn't everyone who is descendant of Abraham. This is the true root, those who have related to God by faith, right? It's only by faith that you can be properly related to God. And we are grafted into that. So in essence, we become part of the remnant that Jeremiah is referring to. And this is where it happens. We see it happen, um, or at least we see it described uh, in the book of Romans. So uh, when he talks about this remnant, we're going to talk about it again. These people that are remnant because their heart has been changed, um, as we'll get to in chapter 24. Uh, this, is, this is us. And again, it's all by... Uh, faith, and uh, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in Romans 9, we'll, verse um, uh, 25, Paul starts to quote the prophets. What a shock. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And then the very place where it said to him, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And now he's going to quote Isaiah. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel become be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This remnant, the ones that are saved, they come to right relationship with God just like we do, by faith. Right? Hebrews 11 talks about this. Romans 11, Romans 9. The story hasn't really changed. We're just getting a little different angle on it uh, here in Jeremiah chapter 23. Verse 20, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 23, verse 4. Uh, once God gathers this remnant, he says in verse 4, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and there shall be no fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, he shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Um, This is Jesus, right? So ultimately, um, this is Jesus. And it says, and I think Dad talked about, you know, all the things that, you know, uh, the Jews often look back to, and, and the, the rescue from Egypt is always talked about, as it should be talked about, because that is a picture of how Jesus rescues and redeems us. 
um, takes us out of slavery and into the promised land uh, figuratively as he did literally there. But it says in verse 7, Behold, the days are coming when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. So in other words, this, when it says in verse 6, the Lord of righteousness, this, uh, there's a, it's a Jehovah term that I'm not qualified to pronounce, um, translated, the Lord is righteousness. This is referring to Jesus. Um, this is going to be better than what Moses did. And when, throughout the Bible, we talk about that Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. So, so what God is going to do when he gathers this remnant together and puts Jesus, the good shepherd, as we saw not long ago in John, in charge of this newly gathered together flock, it's going to make all that that happened with G Egypt and the Red Sea and the plagues and everything pale by comparison. This is going to be amazing. Now, verse 9. Here we have in the first phrase our little, our little heading. Now, concerning the prophets, there are a few things that Jeremiah would like to say. My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Uh, I've come across the term many times over the last few months um, and it's not it's a term that having grown up in a southern Baptist church and by that I mean not just a southern Baptist church but a southern Baptist church also in the south okay. there, are, there are a few elsewhere um, but uh, a Southern Baptist church in the South, I mean, let's be honest, there's a good and a bad side to our culture of hospitality and how's things going and how's your mom and bless her heart and all those sorts of things. We like to put a good face on things, right? In fact, I've talked to many of my patients who maybe have lost a child or a spouse or something and I'll say how you're doing and they have to catch themselves from saying oh I'm fine because that's expected around here right oh I'm, I'm fine when you know they're not fine it takes a long long time to be fine but I've also had people who confess to me that they've had acquaintances who they have taken the risk of telling the truth and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing well. And then that other person is so uncomfortable with that, they'll say, oh, well, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you know, why did they even risk being vulnerable? Because they were, oh, you know, a little pat on the hand. Oh, you're going to be fine. 
So as a culture, we're not, we're not sometimes comfortable with this concept of feeling bad about something and kind of hanging out in the bad feeling for a while because we should feel bad about whatever it is. That's this concept of lament. And that is the word that I've encountered more times lately just in readings and podcasts and so forth. It's not something that we really talk about a lot in church, right? Now, I know that there are some uh, more liturgical-based denominations that are probably better at this than we are because they follow kind of a church calendar, right? And they might look at the season of Lent as a time of reflection and perhaps lament. And there may be other days throughout the year. Um, So when Jeremiah says, my heart is broken with me, it's okay if we kind of sit with him there for a while and lament the state of how things are. And Jeremiah had a lot to lament as we're going to continue to see, but I would argue that we have quite a bit to lament as well. And, and that's okay. And it may be that if we lamented better, then we might be better informed to provide empathy to people and maybe even to provide better action to address whatever it is we're um, you know, considering. But, but we probably don't hang out in lament as much as we should. And I'm speaking to myself here because I'm naturally an optimistic person. I've been told sometimes I don't worry about the things I probably should worry about. Probably true. Um, so I, this, this, this hit me that, that um, we should not be scared of that. Um, I watched my daughter teach her daughter when, you know, a four-year-old, when things aren't going your way, you want to express that, right? And, uh, and Anna has told my granddaughter, Carrie, you know, Kara, it's okay to have big feelings. Um, the world's not going to crash down, you know. Um, you know, you go ahead and you go have your big feelings, and, th- and that's what you should do maybe at this time. And, and so maybe Jeremiah is having big feelings about this because it's appropriate to do so. Uh, picking up with the 11, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Now we're going to get some examples. Verse 13. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. All right, so this is bad enough. Uh, Baal, this fertility god, um, we've talked about the high places where... Bad things would happen up in the hillsides. Um, so the Samaritans were prophesying by Baal and leading people astray. But look at 14. In essence, Jeremiah is saying, but the prophets in Jerusalem, they were worse. It says, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Because of 
their ungodliness, it has permeated the whole region. It's just, you know, it's badness. Now, you know, just like sometimes um, the rescue of people from uh, the promised land is looked back on as a positive action of God, very often scripture will look back on Sodom and Gomorrah as um, evidence of what can happen when God is upset when things are just so egregious um, that that literally hailfire and brimstone is going to come down and that's what he's saying here and I know it comes up fairly often but it comes up often in our culture there are certainly people who would love to reinterpret um, what happened when Lot visited uh, Sodom there uh, as something other than uh, having to do with homosexual sin there were probably a lot of other sins going on as well but um, it would be really hard to interpret all that in some positive light because every time scripture mentions it it's a it's not a good thing it's a bad thing and that's you know here's just another verse there's just evidence of that so the prophets of Samaria led people astray the prophets of Jerusalem were fornicating up in the hillsides and then coming to the temple Verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So now we're shifting into prose. You know, we've talked about in Jeremiah, we go, go back and forth between poetry and prose. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you, and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. So here are these, here are the false prophets. They're filling their words with a message of hope. And what are they saying? You're going to be fine. I didn't start out to, <laughs> to, to, to make the point that the word fine might be the most evil word we deal with. <laughs> but it's kind of sounding that way, isn't it? Maybe the next time you hear that word, maybe you'll think about it. I mean, look at what he says. They say, it will be well with you. I think it's a fair paraphrase to say, you're going to be fine. You're fine. Don't worry about it. And then the truth perks up. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? And who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it shall burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. Hindsight. I did not see the prophets. I, I'm sorry, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed the words to my people. They would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Um, these were sort of prophets that were prophesying 
of what the Lord said when they had not been in the presence of the Lord. It said in verse 22, if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have heard. They would have proclaimed the words to my people. They would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Not a big stretch to say the false prophets of the day are probably not hanging out with the Lord. They're not, they're not aligning their message with the revelation of Scripture. They're way more likely to pick and choose Scripture with just enough of that to make their false message pass the undiscerning ear. And people just lap it up. Verse 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Uh, so just the, the shift in, in prose here, we're going to hear some comments about the character of God. Um, and these rhetorical questions um, that are basically not really questions, they're pretty much statements. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Now, that, that's, that's, that's kind of amazing right there, right? Do I not fill heaven and earth? I don't know about you, but I've been fascinated by these photos coming from the new uh, James Webb telescope, right? Um, that are just... They're, they're seeing you know, farther and farther away than they've ever seen with more clarity than they've ever seen. And um, uh, in fact, <laughs> this is chasing a rabbit. Uh, you'll probably come across some articles that um, where some of the uh, astrophysicists are admitting we're seeing stuff we're not really supposed to see in ways that we're not supposed to see. Um, things that don't correlate with the standard dogma of the day, the Big Bang Theory, and you know there was this big explosion, and blah, 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 blah. Um, all that space between all those stars, so many gazillion years away, God feels all of that, it says. <laughs> this is crazy. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? When badness is afoot, when there's nastiness going on with the prophets, with the shepherds, God notices that. He's not oblivious to that. Am I not seeing this? No. In essence, God's saying, you know, I'm here. I'm right here. I know what you're doing. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying I have dreamed I have dreamed how long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. 
the true prophet is going to make a few waves, breaking rocks, starting fires. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. I'm against the prophets who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I'm against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lives and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Now, uh, from verse 33 to verse 40, um, I, I, honestly, I probably should have changed translations. I, I use the, the ESV, as you guys know, and generally it tracks pretty good. Uh, I'm probably going to have to um, swap over, but um, I think the New American, uh, you'll often see the word oracle in this next passage I'm going to read. The ESV uses the word burden. Um, they're both talking about the same thing, and it's honestly just a pun that Jeremiah is using because it can actually be turned both ways. Like, what's this message that you've got? You know, and we hear it sometimes in churchy words. Uh, you know, Pastor, what bird are you going to bring on? Bring us today. You know, uh, what message are you going to give for us today? Uh, what's God laid on your heart? Right? You've heard that term. And what's not said there? Like a burden, right? What are you carrying that you'd like to unload? It's that kind of terminology and, and putting it to, together. One commentator said the word means a burdensome pronouncement. Okay? So when I read burden and oracle, you'll get the idea um, back and forth. It's, it's some wordplay here. When one of this people, this is verse 33, or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden, and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. So you could read this when somebody says, what is the oracle of the Lord? And you say to them, You're, you are the burden, right? Same word. But it, in the first part of the verse, it can mean, you know, what do you have to say? What's, what's on your mind? What's your oracle? And then the answer is, well, you are, <laughs> you are the message. You are the burden. All right, so that's, that's what he's trying to highlight there. Verse 34, and as for the prophet, priest, or one of the people who says the burden of the Lord, I will punish that man in his household. Thus shall you say, everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what has the Lord answered or what has the Lord spoken? But the burden of the Lord, we might say the oracle of the Lord, you shall mention no more. For the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of our hosts, our God. So I think it probably gets more into interpretation rather than translation. So I think that's why some of the translators just said, well, we're sticking with this, right? So I think some say we're sticking with oracle. Some say we're sticking with burden. Some go back and forth perhaps. Uh, but you get the idea. Verse 37, thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you or what has the Lord spoken? But if you say the burden of the Lord... Thus says the Lord, because you've said these words, the burden of the Lord, which I sent to you, you shall not say the burden of the Lord. <laughs> Therefore, behold, I will surely lift you up and cast you away from my presence and, and the city that I gave to you and to your fathers, and I will bring upon you everlasting reproach and perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. So the concept is, 
if you are not, if you're a prophet and if you are not faithfully transmitting this oracle from God and the message is you people are the burden that is the reason for this oracle, if you're not doing that, then you're not being the proper prophet that you need to be. That's the, that's the paraphrase there. All right, chapter 24. Who likes figs? We have a, we have a, a section over here that does not like figs. Um, I know, right? Um, I know mom likes figs. Um, Buddy wants to know if you talk about fig newtons or figs. We could expand it to the fig newtons. Who likes fig newtons? Is that better? Oh. So fig newtons probably have a longer shelf life than figs. Um, and if you've ever been, have you, have you ever been around fig tree? So if you get it too early what comes out, it's that white milky stuff, right? It's technically a, a latex sort of thing and can really irritate your skin. Um, you may also know that as figs get ripened, there are certain insects that love to get into those things, right? And in fact, there's a whole life cycle of this one particular wasp and everything that is involved with the fig anyway. So, so you've got this window of opportunity to eat your figs. Um, in all their glory, um, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about a polarized basket of figs here, all right? But first, a little uh, timestamp. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah and the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. All right, so that's a timestamp, so people can, can uh, run those numbers of who was in power when and when did they get exiled and so forth. And the tally um, that I come across says around 588 B.C., for what that's worth. So Jeremiah has a vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. But the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. All right? So these weren't like average figs, some better than average, some below average. Very polarized basket of figs. These were very, very, very good figs. Pristine, perfect, ready to explode flavor into your mouth figs. And then we have these other figs, just awful, insect-ridden, rotten, nasty figs. Which, by the way, I heard recently, and there's, we don't need a show of hands, but I've heard recently, I don't know if any of you have had COVID and had to take Paxlovid, but about 6% of people have a horrible taste in their mouth. And so I thought about that when I read this about these uh, taste so bad. Um, one person said it was like, like heart, hot garbage, but in your mouth. That just sounded so bad. But Paxlovid, it will keep you out of the hospital. <laughs> Verse 3. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. 
<laughs> you know, the Bible's kind of funny sometimes. Figs. The good figs, very good. And the bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This is the good basket of figs. Um, we'll come back to this. Verse 8. But, thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad that they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, a curse, and all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. If you were a Jew and you were counting on your family tree to save you, this must have been chilling. For those who have been raised in the church and maybe had Christian parents and thought that they were living a good life and that would be good enough, this should be equally chilling. The only way to be properly connected to God is if you have a heart change, and that's what this is about. It says, and I think this may be one of the most amazing phrases I've ever heard of of God's kindness toward us and toward this remnant of which we are a part, like I said before. I will set my eyes on them for good. Right? I will set my eyes on them for good. I got I got the image of perhaps this wealthy benefactor who has just had his eye on some kid, unbeknownst to the kid all along. And it's just been watching, moving things, just not just noticing that whether things are turning out good or not, but arranging things around that child so that when, when he says, I've set my eyes on them for good, this person has the resources to make it happen the power and the connections to shepherd that person through life. That's kind of what I see in probably just some silly little way 
says, I will set my eyes on them for good. And you could take that a couple ways, right? Not just for goodness, but what do we say? That was, that was fixed for good, meaning it was fixed forever, right? Because we use it that way too, and I think that's fair to say. All of this is just God saying, yep, it's bad, you've been told bad, you've influenced people for bad, but there's a group there. I'm going to build them up. I'm going to set them down. Um, and I think one of these um, things, and, and again, I've talked many times about how I don't have this whole um, sovereignty of God, election sort of thing figured out. But notice here, just like we talked about in Romans 5, it says, while we were yet sinners, right? God commended his love to It says, I will give them a heart, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This was a group that was not necessarily good at that point. But God's going to proactively change their heart, and then they're going to be good and come back to him. It's, you know, so it's all grace. And it's just like we've seen throughout the history of the Bible. The, the hero is typically not the person you would expect it to be, right? It was David, the tail end of the sons, to be the better king rather than Saul, who looked and acted and was the populist choice, but he was different. It was Jacob, not Esau. Um, so I think that's why this remnant looks really different, and that's why we look really different nowadays compared to the culture, right? And I think one of the... Um, one of the despairing things is, is in, in this slice of time that this generation, maybe one generation or two before, probably not a whole generation after, but we're going to look back, or historians I suspect will look back, that there will be a time from maybe the 1940s until maybe the early 2000s, we may be already past that, there will be a couple generations there that were like the closest the culture got to Christianity, right? And now we see the culture moving on and now Christianity is looking really weird. We should not be surprised by that because throughout history, there are very few sections of time that have looked like the last let's say roughly 100 years, right? Christianity historically has always been the exception, the undercurrent, the minority, right? We should not be surprised about that because what the culture values is going to continue to look 
more and more and more different. We had a uh, we had a candidate for a new physician at our office that we interviewed. On paper, she would have been amazing. Her credentials were amazing. Her personality was amazing. She was one of the most articulate young women I've ever seen. She said all the right things in all the right places. But wondered if there would be a problem if she took some time out to go do abortions. You know, we've moved on from that candidate, as you might expect. Um, there will be clinics all over the place making her offers because she fits what they want. Because she's a, she's a perfect fit for everything that is popular, everything that is politically correct. She's, she's got unlimited potential by the world standards. So we shouldn't be surprised when things are going crazy. Um, two other points I wanted to slide in real quickly. And that is, we talked a lot about how we see the culture. We also, I want to make just a quick point about how we see ourselves as a church uh, and how we look to change a culture and how, how we need to be better at doing all the things we're doing. And I came across an interesting quote that talked about how long does it change, take to change a church, church's culture. Um, and they say about seven years. Uh, you don't do it with a program. You don't do it by hiring a new staff member. Um, it takes a lot of work. And um, as we try to go from a good place to an even better place, uh, it's going to take work. And I, I know so many of you are supporting that effort, so thank you for that. And then also, I think we also need to be continually cautious on um, just... There's a healthy skepticism that we should have. Um, and I think is it, there is a place for Christian journalists. There's a place for whistleblowers. There's a place for um, us doing our own housekeeping because, unfortunately, the church hasn't always been very good at that uh, to our own detriment. Um, so as you see things happen here or elsewhere, ask questions, ask hard questions, hold people to account, um, look carefully over the roster of the people that you're going to look over Wednesday night, right? Uh, we want people that are going to be um, servants, right? Um, one last quote. <laughs> um, they did a survey of, of people who attend leadership conferences, right? Christian and otherwise leadership conferences. The correlation of people who were also narcissists was quite high. <laughs> so um, we, don't, we don't need uh, pastors and leaders who are uh, celebrities. We need people that are servants, and um, that's what we're looking for. So.
All right, I ran long, but uh, let, let me close. Father, we thank you for the words of Jeremiah, uh, for this glimpse into what was going on back then, for um, the privilege of being part of this uh, remnant, part of this uh, basket of figs where you've given us a new heart. And I uh, pray that you'd uh, continue to help us to uh, try to, to be good servants, to, to be good shepherds to those that you bring us um, uh, close to and that we could um, uh, continue to align ourselves with Scripture and to, to be in your counsel. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.